if you want to reduce the number of people that are coming to prison, you know, we know a lot of them are coming back because of their issues with alcohol. When people were committing crimes related to alcohol, he would actually have them come into the sheriff's office once in the morning and once at night, every single day, and blow into a breathalyzer. If there was any alcohol in their system, they would go to jail for a night or two. The idea was to hold people accountable. So this attorney general says, why don't we do a pilot program in some other counties in the state? The stories I've heard is that there were a lot of people that just laughed at him. But you know, he was the attorney general and you know, he knew some judges. And so around 2005, they started a pilot program. And this is a, it's, the program is called 24-7 Sobriety. This is for people who have repeatedly threatened public health and public safety. And the judges were impressed. People were coming in and, you know, the vast majority of them didn't have any alcohol in their system. I mean, I think over 99%. This is the Way Podcast. The militias needed to have a heads up that I was coming. I personally think they didn't, you know, like in chess. So that's how deep the addiction goes. I've been incarcerated most of my life. Having a conversation with Or they've been given no option, either join or die. Snipers, and it was a military. J. Cole came and hung out most of the fire session. I'm standing at the studio blast looking out into the studio. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. This is Bill with The Way Podcast on FM 91.7, WHUS Doors at the top of the hour. Also on FM 90.3, WRIU, South Kingston at the top of the hour. Today, I'll be speaking with Bo Kilmer. He is the McCauley Chair in Drug Policy Innovation, Director of the RAND Drug Policy Research Center, and Senior Policy Researcher at the RAND. His research lies at the intersection of public health and public safety with special emphasis on crime control, substance use, illegal markets, and public policy. Don't forget to give a five-star rating, like, share the show, every little bit helps. You can find information at podcasttheway.com. Follow the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. But again, information at podcasttheway.com. What are some of the consequences of marijuana legalization? Yeah, so I've been uh, doing research on drug policy now for almost 25 years. I, uh, I started at RAND as an intern and uh, I never really left. Um, you know, so for those of you who don't know much about RAND, you know, we're a nonprofit, nonpartisan research organization, which really tries to improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. And uh, you know, we work in a lot of different areas, ranging from health to labor to, economic, or to employment, science and technology, climate change, national security, um, a, a wide variety. But kind of at, at the nexus of the research that we do on health and the criminal legal system and social and economic well-being, we have our Drug Policy Research Center. And so I'm, I currently co-direct that center. And, you know, we work on a lot of issues related to substance use and drug policy. Um, a quick question about that. How, what does your research look like? It's like we see the news where it's like, oh, study says this, study says that. Like, what does your actual research look like on the job? Yeah, well, it really depends. So, you know, so sometimes I'm, you know, you know, for some states, I've been helping them try to figure out the size of their cannabis markets. 
so then they can make decisions about how many stores to allow, how many licenses to give out. You know, I've also done, you know, market estimates for for the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. So sometimes that will come out in article, you know, in reports. You know, sometimes that comes out in uh, articles in peer-reviewed journals. Um, so, uh, you know, and then, you know, and sometimes I write about the findings and op-eds and kind of more, uh, you know, kind of popular uh, media outlets. Uh, but, uh, but right, it's really interdisciplinary. You know, I, when I'm working on these projects, I'm typically working with, you know, fairly large teams. And, you know, as I said, with my colleagues, we work in a lot of different areas. But for me personally, I've been spending a lot of time, gosh, over the past 13 years or so, doing work on cannabis legalization. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, people have been debating this uh, and, you know, in dorm rooms and at dinner parties for decades, right? But, but you know, I'm here in California, and right around 2009, 2010, the conversation started to get a bit more serious. Um, you know, there was legislation that had uh, been introduced uh, at the state level, and then there were discussions about there possibly being a ballot initiative uh, to legalize cannabis uh, in 2010, which ended up being Proposition 19, uh, which was defeated. But, you know, being here in California and being a drug policy researcher, I really kind of saw both sides of the issue kind of talking past one another, using really big numbers that, you know, it made it hard to kind of have a rational discussion about this. So with some of my colleagues, we decided to put together a report um, which tried to help people understand, hey, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, and here's some of the things that, you know, California would need to think about. Um, if uh, you know, if it were to go down this pathway uh, of legalizing, and I gotta say, from that, you know, one of the big takeaways from that report. So this was 2010. Okay. Was helping people understand that if you legalize cannabis, the price is going to drop dramatically, and and when that well, happens, that's going to have a lot of implications. For, I will say before taxes. I feel like taxes is before a good, tax, like twenty dollars. Yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but your production and distribution costs are going to go down quite a bit. And it definitely takes time, right? So, um, you know, and there are a number of reasons why we would expect these costs to go down. I mean, typically, you know, you know, back when it was prohibited, when people would buy cannabis or meth or heroin, you know, a lot of what you're doing is compensating the drug dealer and everyone else along the supply chain for their risk of arrest and risk of incarceration. With legalization, that goes away. And also, if you allow really big companies to get involved, you know, they can take advantage of economies of scale, can produce it at a, uh, at a cheaper rate. And, you know, and just it's easier to take advantage of uh, changes in technology, you know, with a, a legal market. And so, yeah, so we did some work trying to help people understand, like, look, it's going to dramatically reduce these production and distribution costs. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll see a similar decrease at the retail level. Right. Because depending on taxes and how the taxes are set up, um, you know, and how the cannabis is sold, that can affect the retail price. But what we are seeing in a lot of places in some of the more mature markets is that you are seeing these big price declines, even at the retail level. You know, so, for example, in Oregon, you know, in October of 2016, you could buy a gra the median price for a gram of flour was probably it was a little more than ten dollars. You know, by October 2022, it was down to, you know, closer to $4, you know, about a 60% decrease there. And, uh, 
And so anyways, so I mentioned this because if you look at a lot of the outcomes that get discussed in legalization debates, you know, whether it be what happened to consumption, the size of the illegal market, tax revenues, the profitability of businesses, which matters a lot in terms of social equity or can matter a lot. Um, all those depend on what happens to the price. And uh, okay. and so uh, so yeah, so definitely one of the things that you know that you know we kind of predicted and kind of what we're seeing is that especially in your more mature markets, the prices are going down. Now it takes time, um, you know, for this to happen. Uh, but uh, but does we're seeing that, these cl decline. Yeah. Does that also impact sort of the secondary costs where like somebody who's addicted to say crystal meth, they're on the corner and they're asking for funds or however they go about getting the, the money, if drugs are legalized, does that impact that in any way? Well, it depends on what drugs you're talking about. Um, you know, there, there isn't a lot of solid evidence linking cannabis use to property crime. Um, it's different when you talk about heroin. There's a fair amount of research suggesting that, you know, people who frequently use and have a heroin use disorder, um, you know, that, you know, that that is uh, associated, you know, for some of those individuals with an increase in criminal activity, especially for property crimes. Um, but it depends. But no, but you're right. When you when you talk about the larger issue um, of, uh, of legalization, you know, it's going to push those prices down. And so you wouldn't necessarily need as much money uh, to be able to purchase uh, the amount that you needed. What do you say in that case, like, say, the would legalizing all drugs sort of be a better outcome then versus just legalizing marijuana or because it sounds like legalizing marijuana is, is a pro it depends on your perspective on this um you know obviously if you're someone who frequently uses cannabis and it, all of a sudden now it's legalized and you have you know all these choices when you walk into a store and if over time it's pushing those prices down that's going to be a benefit to your cannabis users um you know, uh, in terms of revenue, you know, there are revenues coming into the states. Uh, but uh, the thing you have to keep in mind with the with the tax revenue is that you got to be smart about how you tax it. And look, I'll be honest, nobody knows the best way to tax cannabis. But uh, there's a growing consensus that taxing it as a function of the price, what economists call an ad valorem tax, is probably not the best approach. And this is what we see in a lot of places. So because if you're tax, you know, if the tax is a function of, of the price, you know, 15%, 37%, you know, depending on where you are in the country, if those prices go down, well, so will your tax revenue, unless you see a big increase in consumption. And in fact, in Colorado, if trends continue, this will be the first year that Colorado actually sees a reduction in its cannabis tax revenues because the prices have fallen. Now there are other ways to tax cannabis. You know, for example, uh, you know what they're going to, uh, what they're planning to do uh, in Connecticut and also New York, is to tax cannabis as a, a function of its THC content. And you know there okay. uh, there are a couple different advantages to doing that. Uh, one, you know, it's not as susceptible to the price drops, um, and it, and it kind of you know it, it kind of puts a floor on what that price, uh, what the price of the products will be, but also. You know, if you are going to allow, uh, you know, all these products to be on the market and you're not going to limit potency, uh, one of the things that you could do with a potency tax is you could set it up in a way, uh, you know, to have a kind of a progressive tax, it, you know, to potentially nudge people towards some of the lower potency products. Um, 
But that said, yeah. with a potency tax, you got to make that sure that you. Yeah. Okay. I lost you for a minute there. Uh, but okay, we're back. If you have a lower tax rate, say you lose the uh, some of the revenue. Well, if you have a higher tax, the government might get more money out of it, but wouldn't that push people to go towards secondhand uh, drug dealers or like their friends, stuff like that? Yeah, well, this is exactly where the whole issue of values comes in. And, and what, what, what are your goals for legalization? You know, for example, if your top goal is to reduce the size of the illegal market as quickly as possible, you know, you would just give out a bunch of licenses, flood the market, have a low tax rate, and try to move people over that way. However, there's some people who, you know, they want to reduce the size of the illegal market, but they're fine if it takes longer because they would rather have more regulations, better testing, kind of keep those prices higher uh, to, you know, potentially reduce youth consumption. And, uh, and so, and can take more of a public health approach. So this is where, you know, depending on what you're, what you value, that's going to kind of shape what kind of regulatory system you want to see. Is marijuana tax higher than cigarettes and alcohol? Because I'm, I think it's like double. I want to say. Well, once again, it depends on, um, you know, it, it depends on the state, and also depends on not only what the rate is, but also the base. Um, but uh, I'm not entirely sure at this moment what the kind of effective tax rates are for all three products. Um, but, uh, but, you know, there is a lot of variation there. So, you know, in some places, you know, you may have a 15% tax at the retail level. Um, other, you know, I think Oregon has a 17% tax, but at the state level and maybe a, in, in local governments could add on to that. You know, Washington has a 37% tax. Um, and so, uh, so, yeah, so that's, so, you know, obviously it's going to vary by state. Um, but in terms of thinking about, uh, you know, taxing alcohol, um, you know, at, at the federal level, this idea of taxing cannabis, you know, as a function of its potency or, you know, at least right now as a function of THC content, that would be fairly similar to how the federal government and, you know, in, different, in, in a number of other states kind of tax alcohol, you know, different rates for beer versus wine versus liquor. Um, and so, yeah, so it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out in both New York and, and uh, Connecticut. Yeah, especially Connecticut, my home state. One of, yeah. uh, FM 91.7, one of the radio stations this airs from. But, all right, moving from marijuana, some of the other, one of the things I saw from your book was the U.S. has gone through four major epidemics of illegal drug use. What were they? How were they impacted? And are we going through any new ones at the moment? Yeah, so you could take this in a lot of different ways. Um, I mean, obviously, we had issues, uh, you know, there were serious issues with heroin in the, uh, uh, you know, in the 1970s, you know, come into the, you know, 1980, late 80s, early 90s, you know, the, the, all the issues related to crack cocaine. Um, and then obviously now we're in uh, um, the middle of a terrible overdose crisis, largely driven by illegally manufactured uh, uh, fentanyl uh, that's now largely produced in Mexico. Um, but the one thing it's also important when we talk about drug policy, it's also important not to forget alcohol. You know, you'll, you'll yeah. often hear people talk about alcohol and drugs, but no, alcohol is a drug. And so some of the work that I'm doing right now is actually looking at this idea of losing your license to drink. 
Not losing your license to drive, okay. but actually losing your license to drink. I mean, so think about it. When you turn 21 in the United States, you essentially get a, uh, a license to purchase and consume as much alcohol as you want. So the yeah. question is, is, well, at what point should you lose that license? You know, should you, you know, should you be able to keep drinking after your fourth DUI or after your, you know, fourth domestic violence arrest that's associated with alcohol? And so I've been doing some research on this now. For, yeah. it's, it's been over 10 years. Um, it started uh, in South Dakota. So about yeah. 20 years ago, uh, the governor in South Dakota, he put together this blue ribbon commission because he didn't want to increase, he didn't want to build any more prisons. He wanted to reduce incarceration. So he puts all these smart people together and say, hey, help me figure this out. Well, right after he had created this commission, there was a new attorney general for the uh, uh, state of South Dakota. And he used to be a, a district attorney in some county that had, you know, two, 3,000 people. And he said, hey, look, if you want to reduce the number of people that are coming to prison, you know, we know a lot of them are coming back because of their issues with alcohol. And so let me tell you what I did when I was the district attorney in this small county. When people were committing crimes related to alcohol, you know, he wouldn't just tell them, hey, you can't drink. He would actually have them come into the sheriff's office once in the morning and once at night, every single day, and blow into a breathalyzer. If there was any alcohol in their system, they would go to jail for a night or two. So, I mean, they're not going to, you know, they're not going back for a year or anything. But the idea was to hold people accountable. So anyways, so this attorney general says, hey, why don't we give this a shot? You know, you know why don't we do a pilot program in some other counties in the state? And, you know, the stories I've heard is that there are a lot of people that just laughed at him. They're like, what are you talking about? You really think you're going to get people who've been drinking for 30 years just to stop and then also come in twice a day? But, you know, he was the attorney general and, you know, he knew some judges. And so around 2005, they started a pilot program. And this is a, it's, the program is called 24-7 Sobriety. And, you know, they were focused on people who were, you know, this was a, 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 you know, a third, second, third, fourth, you know, DUI. So this isn't something like for a first offense or someone gets a minor in possession somewhere, right? This is for people yeah. who have repeatedly threatened public health and public safety. So anyways, he gets these judges to try the program and they're initially focused on those that have been arrested or convicted for DUI. And the judges were impressed. Like people were coming in twice a day and, you know, the vast majority of them didn't have any alcohol in their system. I mean, I mean, well over 90, I think over 99%. Anyway, so the judges then started freelancing. They're like, well, hey, I've got this, you know, this, this guy who's been arrested for domestic violence. I know he has alcohol issues. I'm going to put him in this program. And so, and then the judges started talking to other judges and this program started to spread throughout the state. And so, so fast forward to around 2009. So I'm, I'm, I'm a drug policy researcher, primarily focused on illegal drugs. And someone says, hey, Bo, I got to tell you about this program. So he describes it to me and tells me how in some of these counties, you've got hundreds of people coming in every morning and every night. And my jaw just dropped. I was kind of in disbelief. You know, not much had been written about mm -hmm. this. So I go to my bosses at RAND and say, hey, I don't know if this is going to turn into anything. But hey, can I? Will you? Can, will you essentially cover my time to road trip South Dakota, <laughs> so I can see what this program? <laughs> yeah. So I go up to South Dakota. You know, I make the mistake of going in the middle of uh, February, 
<laughs> yeah. So it was cold. Prime yeah. Winter. Yep. But uh, I mean, I'm from Northern Michigan, but you know, being out in California made oh. me soft. But anyways, so I go and I check this program out in a few different, you know, it spread to a number of counties. And, you know, in some places you did have hundreds of people coming in, you know, in some counties, you know, super small counties, you may have four or five. And um, so, so I kind of do all this and I'm talking to the people who are in the program and the people operating it. And I kind of thought to myself, like, there's something here, you know, they, what they need is a real evaluation to see if this is making a difference in people's lives. So at the yeah. end of the trip, I go to the attorney general and said, hey, um, what you need is an independent evaluation. What that means is you would open up your books, give me access to all of these, all the data. You'd have no control over the results. But if you can promise me that, I probably could go get some funding to do this research. And at the time, he's like, go for it. So anyway, so I do that and yeah. I got some federal funding to look into this. And so we found that the program not only reduces repeat arrests for DUI, it's also associated with reductions in domestic violence arrests, reductions in people, the number of people who die. So this, I mean, this isn't some small scale program. I mean, the last time I ran the numbers, I mean, I think there were more than 40,000 unique people in South Dakota who have been in this program. You know, the back of the envelope calculation was maybe 6% of all adult males. I mean, this was a big, yeah. I mean, this was a wide-scale program. And so anyway, so we found, yeah. you know, we've published these, this research suggesting it makes a difference. But the question is, is, well, can it work in other places? And, um, you know, this whole idea of kind of losing your license. And, and uh, yeah, so we've, we've also studied the program in North Dakota, showed that it made a difference there. Same with Montana. So, but the thing is, is, you know, this is, these are all the great plain states, right? And so the question right. for me is, you know, can this program work in kind of more urban areas? Um, like Los so Angeles. So anyways, but, you know, I'm, yeah, yeah. I mean, you could, but so. what's also interesting about it is over time, so they, you know, most of the people would do the twice a day breathalyzers, but there are other people that were wearing some of those alcohol monitoring bracelets. So these are bracelets, you know, they're multiple companies that make them now, but, you know, you can wear them. Wear them 90 days at a time. You can wear them in the shower. You know, you can't wear them. You can't necessarily go swimming. But about every 30 seconds, or I'm sorry, every 30 minutes, it tests your sweat for alcohol. And it stores all that information. And then, you know, through a modem, sends it all to a company. And then it can tell whether or not you've been drinking, whether or not you've been tampering with the device. And, you know, I mean, that was state of the art 15, 16 years ago. They now have other devices, um, you know, these, um, this remote breath. So essentially, you know, you'll get a, a text from your probation officer. You pull this thing out, you blow into it, and uh, it has facial recognition software. So within 60 seconds, your probation officer, they have verification that it's you. They uh, know your GPS coordinates, and they know whether or not you've been drinking. And I mean, the thing with this is, like, these technologies are just going to keep getting cheaper and better. But it's what you do with that information that ultimately determines whether or not this ends up, you know, improving public health and public safety. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's, it looks like, you know, kind of based on our research, they implemented a version of the program uh, in the United Kingdom. Um, it's a bit different from kind of how it's been implemented here. And I haven't seen any hardcore research on that yet, but uh, it will be fascinating to learn, you know, how this, you know, does this make a difference in other places and also you know, in places uh, that have, you know, kind of a higher population density. Whenever talking about drugs, I always see the side of like, oh, 
Decriminalizing reduces the numbers, making it easier for the people to want to see support or like, I don't know, just making the sort of look at the good side approach or making it easier to be good and stuff. With this approach of like, oh, you messed up. Well, here's a actual, not punishment, but like an actual way to sort of keep you on track. The more, instead of just throwing them in prison the with our wicked overpopulated prisons in America or the yeah. look at the good options, it's like an actual self-monitoring a self-actually checking system. Well, you know, Bill, you raise a really interesting question there. It's something I've wanted to look at. I mean, so obviously the way that this program works is it's largely about creating a credible deterrent threat. You know, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about this program is it's fully transparent. You know when you need to show up, you know what the results are going to be. And that's so much different than how the criminal justice system typically uh, operates. There's often a lot of uncertainty. You know, you might get arrested for a DUI. You might not have your court date for six months. You know, this, what this program does is it really focuses on trying to create swift, certain, but fair sanctions for individuals. You know, trying to hold them accountable, but not, you know, not put them back in prison for multiple years. But one of the things that we also know is that, you know, people, um, you know, people with substance use disorders, they also tend to respond very positively to positive incentives. And so this is what, what in the research field they refer to as contingency management. And you know, they've shown there have been multiple randomized controlled trials showing that even people who have a substance use disorder, that if you offer them small incentives in return for them not using, you know, some people do comply. And, um, and so one of the things I've wanted to do in terms of research is kind of look at this 24-7 sobriety program, look at how it typically operates with the, you know, the night or two in jail, uh, you know, for a violation, but then, you know, have one group kind of do the typical program, but then have another group that not only kind of has that potential sanction, but then also might give people positive rewards. Like after two weeks, if you, you know, if you have no violations, you get a movie pass. Like it doesn't have to be big. But studies have shown that these positive rewards can make a difference. So that's something I wanted to kind of look at this with, uh, as well. I remember talking with somebody and they said, if you try to put somebody in a help program, they wouldn't be as susceptible to joining that versus if you ask them, hey, would you be interested in a help program? Like the way you ask, if you say, would you be interested versus, hey, here's the program. Have you seen any effect with that in your research? Well, so what's interesting, at least about this 24-7 sobriety program, is it's not like a drug court or a DUI treatment court where people where you know, either you go to either you go into treatment and be part of a program or you go to or, or you're gonna spend your time behind bars or have some other sanction. The way that this operates is they don't order people to go into treatment. They're like, if you wanna go to treatment, if you wanna go to meetings, that's fine. You can do that on your we're not gonna force it on you. All we require is that when you come in, you don't have any alcohol in your system. What states are implementing that now? Or you said you want to see in the urban areas. Have we seen any progress yeah, in that so, section? Well, so statewide, you know, it's, it's primarily statewide, you know, South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana. And then you've got some different counties and different places that are experimenting with this. Um, and, but I'm not aware of any research that's being done on some of these other places. Um, but no, it's something that I, I, you know, you know, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm just a researcher on this. I'll never forget. I remember one time 
I was pre- I was presenting this research kind of it was at a treatment a, a conference focused on substance use treatment, and it was a poster presentation. And someone came up to me and they're like, "Oh, hey, I don't like your program." And first of all, you know, I look at them and say, "Well, first of all, it's not my program. I'm just the researcher, <laughs> just trying to look at whether or not this is making a difference." But then I also pushed her on it. She's like, "Well, it doesn't require treatment." And you know, there are some people that think that you have to have kind of formal treatment, and you know, what this suggests is that's not the case. And um, yeah, it's a, so it's yeah, so you've got it in those three states, in those, in, in a few other counties. Um, but there's there's a lot more work to be done on this. And you know, I don't, you know, as I was alluding to before, I don't know if this is going to work everywhere. Um, you know, it's going to depend. You know, a lot of it's going to depend on you know, does it? Are you able to create kind of this credible deterrent threat? Um, but I do think that the evidence that we've seen so far, you know, at least suggests that, you know, it might be worth a pilot program, at least give it a try, you know, see if it, see if it makes a difference. If not, try something else. But in some places it really could make a difference. Looking at like the government and maybe implementing policies, that idea, I saw an example looking through the research, uh, soft versus hard drug policies. Yeah, that's, uh, that. That's kind of a dichotomy that, you know, I try to push against. Um, it used to be the case that people would talk about soft drugs being like alcohol and cannabis, and then hard drugs would be your opioids and cocaine. Um, but that distinction just isn't that helpful. Um, you know, most people who use alcohol don't run into any issues, uh, but alcohol can create major problems for people. And so some people will say, why would you call that a soft drug? You know, so I try to kind of stay away from that distinction. Um, and, 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 and as I alluded to earlier, I really think when we have these conversations about drugs, alcohol has to be part of it. We can't just say, oh, there's alcohol. It's already legal. We won't talk about that. Um, I do think when we have these policy discussions, we need to be talking about, well, what can we do to kind of reduce harms related to alcohol? Um you know, there's a new study that I just saw came out either yesterday or maybe earlier today, just talking about, you know, the role that alcohol plays in terms of uh, um, the uh, had a connection error, but we're back. And so we left off talking about how alcohol is a lot more dangerous. And for the longest time, I'd say this stat, but I found out tobacco is technically the number one deadliest drug, but isn't alcohol like if you combine every other drug death combined, it's not even close to alcohol, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, when you take into account, um, I mean, obviously, you know, traffic, you know, traffic uh, fatalities, all the health issues that are associated. Uh, both, you know, there are some people that you know do overdose and die, you know, by consuming too much alcohol. But there are also a lot of other health consequences, whether it be cancer or cardiovascular disease that are linked to alcohol. Um, yeah, I know it comes for a very large amount of death. That whole uh, research you were discussing earlier, can that be implemented with other drugs besides alcohol? Yeah, it, it can be. And so actually there was some research. It was actually it was a program. So at the same time, that program 24-7 sobriety was starting in uh, in South Dakota, there was a similar program um, that was started in Hawaii. Com- complete, you know, it was a separate initiative, and there and it was largely focused on people who were using methamphetamine. Okay. And they did a randomized controlled trial and found that uh, 
you know, that it did make a difference, that it did reduce not only methamphetamine consumption, but also other crimes uh, and reduce recidivism. And so, so it can be used for other, you know, uh, for other substances. Um, but a couple, a couple things you got to keep in mind. One, I mean, the, the, these programs work because, as I said, they're extremely transparent. They're very different from how things typically operate in the criminal justice system, and they hold people accountable, and um, and they really are able to create this deterrent threat. Um, so you got so if you're going to do this in another place, that's something you'd have to keep in mind. But the other thing you have to be uh, careful about now uh, with opioids is given, you know, given where we are with such a dangerous supply on the streets and with, um, with illegally manufactured fentanyl. I mean, we're, we're in your neck of the woods that, I mean, you've been experiencing this for years. You know, it took a while, but it's been kind of spreading west. And now in California here, it just uh, it's killing so many people. Um, so one of the things you do have to keep in mind, if you were to if you were to do a program like this for opioids, and you know, and if you were able to, and if someone was able to cut back for a week or something, and it really significantly reduced their tolerance, well, then if they went back to the legal market, went back to the illegal market, not only would their tolerance be lower, but it's just so dangerous now. Yeah. So you have to be really careful if you're thinking about doing this for something related to opioids. Um, but this idea of holding people accountable, kind of essentially, as I said, you know, revoking their license to consume, um, you know, it, you know, that, you know, the evidence, at least from, you know, the Dakotas and Montana shows, you know, that it, and also Hawaii shows that it can make a difference. And how do you hold somebody accountable again? Because I know, like, say, fentanyl itself is illegal, but yet people still consume it. Yeah, so, I mean, the way this works is, when they've done this in settings um, for uh, illegal drugs, uh, I mean, the thing with alcohol, the reason why you have to test so frequently for alcohol is because you know alcohol goes through the system pretty quickly. Yeah. Whereas for a lot of your illegal drugs, they'll stay in your system for a couple of days. So you don't necessarily have to test every single day. Um, okay. So that's how that works. And, and I should say that this program in Hawaii, you know, it got a lot of attention. And so uh, the federal government actually tried it out in four other places kind of on the mainland to see whether or not it actually – whether it could work in other places. And what was interesting is when the first study – when the main study came out, it basically said, you know, in these four sites in the United States, the program didn't work. Yeah, yeah, may have, or in the mainland. Like, yeah, it may have worked in Hawaii. It didn't work there. Um, okay. But a couple things to keep in mind – you know, so much of this comes down to implementation, and it turns out this. You know, if you combined all the all the results together from those four places, it looked like the program didn't make a difference with respect to kind of traditional criminal justice outcomes. But if you looked at the one place that actually you know implemented the program most closely to Hawaii, it did seem to make a difference. And the other thing is that when that research came out, it was focused on whether or not people were rearrested or had committed a new crime. You know, but what that study didn't look at was, well, did the program reduce the use of illegal drugs? And it, it turns out that it did. You got so your it's kind of, it was inter <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that, that the finding with respect to it reducing consumption wasn't in the main study. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so the program, you know, like I said, it can be used in other, you know, for other, uh, for other substances. But you got to be real careful with opioids, um, especially, you know, given how dangerous the market is today. When 
talking about drugs and I guess research and data, do you see something very common that the media and the public like us gets wrong about this whole topic in general? Uh, well, I mean, the media tend, well, I, I hate to characterize the media as this one entity, right? I mean, yeah. there are some excellent reporters kind of working in this space. Um, but you also see, like you saw the whole thing with rainbow fentanyl, how that got so much attention. And uh, I mean, there also, there were some political reasons, I think, why that was being pushed. And, uh, you know, and so, so definitely some of these stories, um, um, that, uh, that evoke a lot of emotion, those tend to get picked, you know, once one, you know, one media entity will run with it, then others will kind of pick up on it. And so it does make it hard to have kind of real discussions about what's going on. Um, so, so, so that, that is a bit difficult. And, uh, and also, I mean, and the one thing you definitely do see in the media is this kind of, you often will see this distinction between, oh, there's alcohol and the other drugs, or as I said, I mean, yeah. we need to be talking about all of them together. And so I asked you earlier about the major epidemics that have happened. Right now, mm -hmm. fentanyl seems like a new epidemic, but you were quoted, you said it's more like a poisoning outbreak than a traditional drug problem. Yeah, so, so especially, you know, so when, I mean, let's be very clear. Fentanyl is an amazing medicine. You know, it's used in hospitals across the country. You know, it's prescribed to some people for, uh, you know, who are, who are suffering very, uh, you know, um, serious or dealing with very serious issues with pain. But that, but the fentanyl, you know, from the you know, pharmaceutical grade fentanyl being diverted, that's not what's causing this crisis. The, the issue, the problems that we're dealing with now is with illegally manufactured fentanyl. And so it used to be the case that most of the illegally manufactured fentanyl was coming from China. And then it was kind of being shipped over here and, and then kind of being mixed into heroin. So that's why, you know, especially kind of on the East Coast and then parts of, parts of the Midwest, you know, it really started to pick up 2013, 2014, you know, it was showing up, you know, people thought they were, you know, buying a bag of heroin and maybe it had a little bit of heroin in it, but also had a little bit of fentanyl. And fentanyl is just so potent that that led a lot of people to overdose and, you know, and a share of them to, to die. Um, and, you know, but not even happened, just that. So I know the other day tried cocaine and like there's fentanyl in the cocaine. Ex yeah. yeah. So that's, so, the, so that's, the, that's how, so the problem really has, so that still is an issue, right? With heroin, you know, with heroin being mixed in or, you know, some heroin being mixed in with fentanyl or some of these other illegally manufactured synthetic opioids. But the, pro, but the problem really has grown. So definitely, like I'm out here in Northern California, and for years in San Francisco, they've been dealing with just a, a straight-up fentanyl market. So it, was, you know, it wasn't as if the heroin was being mixed with fentanyl. People were just going and buying fentanyl. Jeez. You've got that. And so and you see that in some other places as well. And then also you've got everything that's happening with the counterfeit pills. So, you know, people go and it looks like it's an Oxycontin pill, but actually it's just got fentanyl in it. Um, you're, you're hearing a lot more about that. And that really has picked up because, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, most of the fentanyl was believed to be produced in China. Over time, that has changed. So now most it's believed that most of the illegally manufactured fentanyl uh, coming into the United States is actually produced in Mexico where the Mexican drug trafficking organizations are still getting the precursor chemicals uh, from China, but they're making it in Mexico, either putting it in powders 
or, or, or kind of put in in counterfeit pills. And Bill, as you mentioned, the other thing we're hearing more about is people using whether it be cocaine or whether it be uh, you know methamphetamine that may have some um, uh, you know fentanyl in it. And so the thing is, is we really that with that last um, kind of issue, we really don't know how common that is or why it's happening, right? It, you know, in some cases it could be people were just cutting up fentanyl on one table, you know, package it up, then they were cutting up the cocaine. And in the process of doing that, you might get some fentanyl in there. Um, so contamination is an issue. Um, it's not entirely clear to me why you know, some dealers would intentionally do that. But well, that's an area where we have a lot more to learn about because you are hearing more about this, um, you know, especially with respect to cocaine. Yeah, I was going to ask how much of it, because I know I've heard where dealers will intentionally overdose one of the customers once in a while. So everybody thinks like, oh, he's got good stuff. Like he's the guy to go to. Oh, I, I don't know about that. And yeah. I mean, right now with fentanyl, I mean, overdoses are just so common. Um, I mean, the other issue is that oftentimes the people that are selling on the street, they don't necessarily know what the fentanyl content is in that bag. Yeah. You know, they're not going to know. In there. So, uh, but anyway, so the, the reason why, you know, and th this is something we started talking about three years ago, so before COVID, is that it really seemed to be more like when we thought about fentanyl, it seemed to be more like a poisoning crisis a traditional drug epidemic and that people weren't most people you know initially weren't choosing to use fentanyl it was showing up in their heroin and i mean over time that is that has started to change you know there are people that are you know specifically looking for fentanyl but there still are a lot of people that are uh, um you know through the counterfeit pills or maybe even you know if they're using cocaine or using you know that aren't intending to use fentanyl but end up consuming it because it's in the product. And so we, we kind of pushed on this early on, this idea, because if we think about this more as a poisoning crisis as opposed to a traditional drug problem, then it means we need to think about this differently than, uh, than how we typically think about um, uh, you know, drug policy in terms of you know, prevention, in terms of putting more money into treatment on the supply side. I mean, obviously, there's a, we have a lot more to do, a lot of room for improvement with, with respect to increasing access to treatments. And the thing is, for opioid use disorder, we've got, we've got some really good treatments. We've got some great medications that they don't necessarily work for everyone, but they work for a lot of people. And those kind of medications we really don't have for stimulants like cocaine or for meth. Um, and so but we, we, you know, we need to do a much better job of increasing access, you know, to those, uh, uh, you know, to those medications and to kind of high quality treatment. Um, but we're not going to treat our way out of this problem. We're not going to arrest our way out of this problem. Um, we need to think creatively a bit. I mean, you're hearing, you know, a lot more discussion about different approaches to harm reduction. So, for example, you're, um, you know, you're hearing a lot more about some of the fentanyl test strips, right? So, uh, yeah, so these so these are strips that you know it's a binary. It tells you whether or not a powder, um, you know, will have um, you know whether or not it has any fentanyl in it. You know, okay. and in some places where people are using heroin, a lot of you know a lot of people just know they know there's fentanyl in it. So that test strip doesn't necessarily provide as much information. But you know, especially if you're someone who's using cocaine or using some of the all these other drugs, you definitely want to be testing it for fentanyl now. With heroin, it could be like how much is how much fentanyl is in it but you can't see that from the strip it just tells you if you have it or if you don't yeah so so that's yeah so so there's a lot of discussion about that here in the united states but you go up to canada they really have taken this to another level 
there are different parts of Canada where um, and people can go and you can test the you can test the drugs and so not only will it tell you the amount of fentanyl that might be in this product but also some of the other substances and so it provides a much richer information and uh, you know we desperately need some of that down here in the United States I know there's some pilot programs and some people are talking about it um, but uh, I mean not that and that not only provides useful information obviously to the people who are using drugs but also it, it can it can also help people understand kind of what's in the market you know we spend all this time talking about illegally manufactured fentanyl and we should but there are all there are other synthetic opioids that are you know uh, that are hitting the market and other synthetic drugs and so one of the things we want to do is, you know obviously if you're doing kind of more of that content testing you get a better idea about what what's being used but the other area where the United States is just way behind is with respect to wastewater testing, actually testing the sewage for metabolites for different drugs. So, I mean, this is something that Europe has been doing. You know, parts of Europe have been doing this for 20 years. You know, you can actually, you know, you can look at, you know, you can take samples, uh, you know, from sewer water and then you look for the metabolites for different drugs. And then you can actually, you know, you can get a sense of, you know, you know, how much cocaine is being consumed, um, what other drugs are kind of being used in the market. And, uh, and, and and this has proved really valuable with respect to COVID, right? We've got this whole kind of network of, you know, different cities and different locate different places uh, that are testing wastewater to get better insights about what's happening with COVID. Um, it wouldn't be hard just to add on to that and include more information about wastewater, you know, you know, in terms of, you know, you know, take an additional sample and, you know, test it for the metabolites for, you know, some of these other drugs, including fentanyl. Gotcha. I like to see one of those tests after like Coachella or like. Oh yeah. Like yeah. That. So it's really, so it's, yeah. So, so one of the things that I've seen, and so it kind of looks like, like the load of metabolites and then you could try to back out consumption. But I remember seeing this one presentation from some European country and, you know, one slide was looking at, uh, by day, so Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all the way to Sunday, and it was looking at heroin, and it was pretty flat. You know, they were testing every day. It was pretty flat, and that kind of makes sense because a lot of the people that were using heroin were using on a regular basis, and so it makes sense that there weren't necessarily a lot of kind of big jumps. Yeah. But if you looked at cocaine, it was kind of flat. Then Friday, Saturday hit, those loads go up. Then it goes back down on Sunday. So uh, there's a lot, like I said, it's it's not that expensive. And, uh, you know, Europe, parts of Europe, Australia have been doing this. But it could be a really useful way to help us get a sense about what, what kind of drugs are entering the markets. You know, as I said, we talk about fentanyl now, as we should. But we really need to be aware of kind of some of the other uh, substances uh, that are going to be hitting these markets. Can the drug trend tell you, like, what's going on with, like, America overall, like, I saw opioids are going up, as everyone knows, but like cocaine use has started to go down a little bit because something like that, yeah. is it just popularity or could it be like, oh, because this is happening in the world, people now want to try this drug or this happening, want to try that? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, I, you know, I had done some work uh, or kind of led a team a couple of times for the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy helping them understand the total number of people that use cocaine, heroin, meth, and cannabis, how much they're consuming, how much they're spending. You know, and so it's useful to kind of get national trends, right? And you kind of see some big differences. Uh, you know, for example, after 2010, or I'm sorry, after 2006, there was a huge drop in cocaine consumption in the United States. 
And uh, we were able to, you know, there are a lot of different theories about what was driving that. Um, but sure enough, kind of at that point, we also saw that there was an increase in price. So price matters for a lot of these markets. It's not the only driver uh, for demand, but price is a, play, price does play a big role. But also, while, while it's useful to kind of have some of this national information, realize that, I mean, drug markets are pretty local. And so and even in the same state, you know, what's happening in one city might be very different from what hap what's happening in another. Um, so, so while it's useful to have this national information, it's also really helpful to get information on kind of what's happening within the local level or at, at, in, within, you know, various communities. And so that's where, you know, for example, like that wastewater testing could be helpful. Um, there are other types of data collection that we could be doing, um, you know, because this is, you know, even though we, you know, Overall, I mean, fentanyl is creating problems in a lot of different communities. You know, if someone were to ask me, well, what should we do? Well, it would depend on, you know, it would depend on the community, right? I mean, what, what's the treatment infrastructure? You know, you know, how easy is it to get treatment? Um, what other types of, what types of harm reduction services do you have? What are the prices? You know, I would want to look at a lot of different factors before I would make some, you know, I'm not going to make some kind of blanket recommendation. You know, you'd want to specify it to the different jurisdiction. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so I think while it's important to get the national information, realizing that a lot of this, you know, there, you've got these local fluctuations, that's going to be important for really kind of targeting policy interventions. Kind of, it's kind of the opposite of what you just said too but is there a way can you give a general idea of maybe a state like maine versus like oakland like is there a general idea of policies you could recommend even though each one is well different? i mean definitely i mean I, well obviously you know it depends on on the problem um you know so um definitely like for example and you know it, for, in most places as i said before alcohol is too cheap and that that's part of the problem, and that and that leads to a lot of the excess consumption. And so you could do things to kind of increase prices there. Um, in terms of um, you know, obviously in terms of opioids, um, you know, making sure that people have access, as, as, especially to the medication treatments. And uh, um, you know, you know, there the issue there is in you know, especially in some rural areas, you know, for so so there are kind of there are two kind of medications that get a lot of attention in this space. One is buprenorphine, which, you know, a doctor can prescribe you. You can go to a doctor's office, doctor can prescribe it, uh, you know, if you have an opioid use disorder. But if you want to get methadone, um, which also there's a, a, a tremendous amount of evidence showing its effectiveness, you can't just walk into a doctor's office and get methadone if you have an opioid use disorder. Now, here's the thing. They, do, they can prescribe methadone for pain for some people. But if you want to get methadone for an opioid use disorder, you actually have to go to a separate clinic. Yeah. And and then in, in with those clinics, you know, and typically you have to go every single day, and only after a certain amount of time um, will they allow you to start, you know, um, having take-home doses. Yeah. And and I know that in a lot of rural areas, um, you know, you know, they don't necessarily have access to methadone uh, um, treatment. Um, yeah, I know so, a lot of people get scared about them too because they'll think, oh, if we have a methadone clinic in our neighborhood, it's going to make all the druggies, the addicts come here and stuff like that. 
Yeah, I mean, people talk about that, but I mean, oftentimes they'll locate them in places kind of where there are a fair number of people who are using. But, the, you know, <coughs> excuse me, there are ways around that. I mean, you, you know, in terms of, you know, mobile methadone uh, vans or units that can actually drive to places. Don't they do you that know, in I Europe? Mean, yeah, yeah, they do that in Europe. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know the extent to which it's happening here in the U.S. So I know that for a while there, the DEA had a moratorium where they weren't essentially allowing that to happen. I don't. I don't recall if that has changed or not. It may have changed. Um, but anyways, um, that's one approach. So you know, if you're talking about a rural area versus an urban area, I mean, obviously making sure that you know methadone as well as buprenorphine are available for those that have an opioid use disorder. Um, and also, you you know, look if. If you had all the funds in the world, you'd also, you know, you want to be making sure that other types of treatment are available as well. You know, because, you know, some some people need, you know, you know, medication works for a lot of people. It doesn't work for everyone. There's some people that would, you know, might prefer to go to an abstinence-based program or they'd rather just kind of do the steps. So making sure that that's available. Um, you know, in other parts of, uh, you know, in places where um, where you already have kind of a good, you know, service or treatment infrastructure, you know, there's a lot of discussion about harm reduction. You know, like I said, that can include fentanyl test strips. That can include, uh, you know, making naloxone available to reverse overdoses. Um, but it can also include, you know, for example, supervised consumption sites, um, which, you know, they're now, these are places where you buy drugs on the street and then you go and you consume them in an environment where, you, where you've got someone there who, if you do overdose, they can intervene, either give you oxygen or administer naloxone. Um, and, uh, and, but you also have access to sterile equipment. And uh, yeah, so there are a number of these kind of supervised consumption sites in Canada, a uh, number in, uh, in Europe. And there are, well, you know, there are some, there are, obviously there are some here in the United States that are kind of under the radar. Um, but uh, last year, um, I believe, yeah, it was the end of last year, New York City opened up two of these sites. And uh, and so far, and even though, you know, um, they're in violation of federal law, the federal government has not intervened. Right. So, yeah. I told you I've done episodes on drugs before, and... Everybody seems to have the same consensus. Like you just added more. I didn't even think about the idea of like testing strips or giving kits, stuff like that. All the consensus, everybody seems to say that decriminalizing or sort of giving these treatment plants or this sort of approach that Canada, Europe, all these other countries are doing is the way to go. Yet we still are in like a growing epidemic. Like why isn't the, why don't you think the government or why don't you think like you just said two in New York City. I feel like we should have had two of those 20 years ago. Yeah. So, I mean, part of the issue is that, you know, when this, when the problem was really starting to pick up, uh, like I said, we saw death starting to go up 2013, 2014. Um, but then kind of after that, we noticed this. And so we wrote a book uh, all on the future of fentanyl and other synthetic opioids that came out and near I don't know, midway near the end of 2019, basically saying, look, we have to pay, you know, we've got, we've got to rethink how we're, how we're approaching these issues um, or else a lot more people are going to die. And uh, because like I said, this wasn't like a traditional drug problem. So we can't just, you know, treat it like we do, you know, we did with, you know, other kind of uh, epidemics in the past. Um, but, you know, 
COVID came, and you know, while it put our issues with opioid overdoses, uh, overdoses in general, on the back burner, they were still boiling over. Yeah. So the public health community was large. I mean, there, look, there were still people working on this, but you know, most of the political capital and most of the attention was focused on COVID, which which makes sense. But now that that's not as receiving as much attention, you're now seeing more people kind of focusing on what's happening. And um, yeah, so I mean, I think we just need to be innovative here. Um, so not only in terms of kind of on with, with respect to harm reduction, um, in terms of the types of treatment, you know, I mentioned a couple different medications in other parts of the world, they're using other medications. Um, and so, I mean, the, th the way I kind of look at it is you kind of want your doctor to have as many tools as possible, right? And we know that in, in, in some other countries, they've got bigger toolboxes. You know, especially since, you know, you know, so, you know, because we know that some medications won't necessarily work for everyone. And so you want to, you know, so you'd want to make that available. And that just, that takes time. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of regulatory barriers, um, you know, you know, with respect to uh, allowing some of these other treatments to be used for opioid use disorder. So, I mean, obviously, you know, if we could, you know, I mean, not, we not only need to make access available for the drugs or for the medications and the treatments we currently have. But we also need to be thoughtful about you know potentially other treatments that they're doing in other countries. You know, working with harm reduction. You know, being creative with respect to supply reduction. You know, supply reduction for drugs is tough, and I got to tell you, for fentanyl, it's even more difficult. Um, so just to help you understand this, and I know I've got to jump off here in just a, a moment, but uh, um, we were trying to estimate how much fentanyl is actually illegally manufactured fentanyl is actually consumed in the United States. Yeah. And uh, this is hard to do. And uh, so we, we kind of, we took a couple different approaches to kind of see, well, like, well, what could the maximum amount be? The takeaway was that, you know, you know, circa 2021, probably uh, the total amount of uh, illegally manufactured fentanyl consumed in the United States was likely under five metric tons. Well, it was like single-digit metric tons. To help you put that in perspective, yeah. for co the last time we estimated this for cocaine, we're talking about something closer to 150 metric tons. For heroin, it was closer to 50 metric tons. For fentanyl, we were talking about single-digit metric tons. It's so potent, and that it's very easy to get it across. Uh, you know, to get it across the border. So we need to be creative. You know. For a while, you know, one thing we don't know is to what extent, you know, are these transactions happening on um, on the dark web and kind of, you know, through, you know, through the Internet? We, we know it counts for some of the market. We really don't know what share. But, you know, there are creative things that enforcement could do to crack down potentially on some of those markets. Um, and so, so I mean, I, I think my takeaway on this is – you know, not just federal policymakers, but also at the state and local level, you really need to be thinking outside of the box and trying and trying some new things, you know, and piloting them. You know, you know, it, you know, it, you, know you might try something for a while and it may not work. But at the end of the day, if we just continue doing the same thing that we've been doing, we're going to still see, you know, hundreds of thousands of people dying over the next 10 years. And. Just uh, curious, what would the worst case approach be? Like, we have a very bad system. The war on drugs was a failure. Say, theoretically, somebody wanted to do the worst thing possible, like make the drug epidemic the worst it's ever been. What would they do? I, 
<laughs> That's kind of an odd question, but uh, no, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I do think that I want to make it clear. I mean, while we, you know, have a hundred thousand people dying each year from overdoses, um, we there has been tremendous progress um, in terms of increasing treatment access. We've got a lot more work to do, but I do want to give credit there. Um, and so, I mean, so I think the worst thing we could do would be pull back, you know, reduce funding for treatment. That would probably be the worst thing. Gotcha. Fair enough. All right. And a last question I want to ask too, is there any hard truth about this topic that the public either doesn't hear much or you think the public doesn't want to hear like some hard truth to this whole matter? Yeah, that alcohol is, is our nation's largest drug problem. By far, right? Yeah. Yeah. You, you look at not only in terms of deaths, but in terms of those that are suffering from alcohol use disorder, and not only what that means for them and what it means for their families, it's association with violence. Um, so, uh, I mean, I, you know, obviously we need to be spending time reducing overdose deaths related to fentanyl. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of other policy discussions out there. But if we're going to take a hard look at how we can reduce harms related to uh, drug use in the United States, we got to pay more attention to alcohol. I just want to ask, too, I know they increased taxes. We talked about tax a lot earlier. I know they, and you said the price of alcohol is very cheap. I know they tried increasing tax with tobacco and even like marijuana is high. Could increasing taxes on alcohol, could that help the situation? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So anyone who's interested in this topic, I highly recommend a book by Phil Cook, who's at Duke University. It's called Paying the Tab. And it's a phenomenal assessment of kind of what's been happening with alcohol policy. And he walks through, here's what the consequences of increasing alcohol taxes would be. And uh, he is probably the nation's expert on this. Um, it's a great book. Um, but, uh, but I mean, so part of it's, you know, you know, so part of it's the price side, right? We could, we could do more there. But as we talked about before, this whole idea of losing your license to drink and trying to help figure out when it would be appropriate to make sure that certain people are, you know, you know, reduce their consumption. Um, you know, I, I think that's something that needs to be kind of, you know, part of the conversation. And, uh, you know, and, you know, to the extent that we've seen these types of uh, 24-7 sobriety programs work in, in the Dakotas and other places, you know, it's something worth considering. All right. Sounds good. Bo Kilmer, thanks so much for coming on the show. Bill, thanks so much for having me. And that was Bo Kilmer. To find more information about him, be sure to click a link in the description. If you're tuning in through the radio, I highly recommend you check out the podcast. A lot more content helps me grow a lot more. Share the show. Give a five-star rating. You can find information at podcasttheway.com. Follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all that information. But you can find it at podcasttheway.com. This is FM 91.7, WHS Stores, at the top of the hour. Also, FM 90.3. WRIU South Kingston at the top of the hour. And as always, deuces. This has been The Way Podcast. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. Mm-hmm.